Good evening, Matt. How are you on this fine day? That was like, hello, Vietnam. Hello, Vietnam. Did I throw you off? Did that actually sound quite professional with that one? <laughs> it, that really threw me off straight away. I was like, uh, what is this? What's this new Steve that I've I'm trying to do my DJ voice, you know. I'm trying to do my DJ voice, getting this, you know. Hello, this is Steve Kelly. The buffering is open. The buffering is open. Like that. I'm getting there. But there, how are you, mate? All good? Yeah, I'm really good, man. How you doing? Not bad, there. Should be a good one, this one. All about simulators. Um, have you got an experience yourself driving one of these? Yeah, I mean, I've only really done a few sort of simulators on the computer, you know, like flying ones. And then the one major one that I did, well, I say major, just one of the normal ones, was uh, like an F1 simulator. But they had three oh, screens, nice. so it kind of covers your peripheral vision. Yeah. Uh, and it proper throws you around, so you're in a sort of uh, you levitated off the ground. You're in like a roll cage, and it kind of if you spin off, it kind of you feel yourself being, yeah, thrown to the side. It's it's weird, really weird feeling. But that sounds amazing. Do you remember where you done that? Uh, I honestly cannot remember for life of me where it was. But I honestly I could have sat there all day and just played it. But it's uh, it's kind of scary, kind of exhausting when you come off it. You're like Jesus. I feel like I've done a bit of racing because you're you're nervous. Because you see this thing kind of throwing people around a bit and you go shit that's it's kind of scary but it's really good fun give it a go if you get a chance yeah to be fair i've never had experience getting this simulator but i've obviously done go-karting for stag dudes that sort of thing and even that's terrifying enough i've got all my mates and family going whizzing past me and i'm like eh, just going like an old granny pace but uh i don't know there <laughs> it's pretty intense i know for fact there's no way i could be a racer no way but um yeah, should be quite a cool episode. Looking forward to um, hearing all about it. And hopefully one day Chris will be able to send us over one of his simulators. Who knows? Send it for the post. That'd yeah, yeah. Nice. I'd love I'd love the Robo one, so let's see if we can get that one. Yeah. Get that one in the office yeah, I mean, we'll, right in the middle. We'll chat about it later on, but that was definitely my favourite one. Cool. In that case, mate, we'll crack on. Thank you guys for being here. Really appreciate it. Chris and Mac for yourself to joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Well, thank you. Good, good to be here, fellas. Um, so obviously, as you guys know, the topic today is simulators. Um, if we could you know, briefly go over a bit about yourselves, could you introduce yourselves to uh, the listeners, what you do, and your sort of background maybe in racing and gaming? Yeah, sure. I'll bite. Uh, so for me, for Mac, I... Uh... I'm the editor-in-chief of Automobile Magazine in the U.S., uh, although these days, as, as everybody knows, with the contracting digital uh, media space, uh, or I should say print space, we've gone 100% digital in the last uh, eight, nine months uh, previous to that. I've been at Automobile for five years. Previous to that, I worked at a U.S. pub, uh, a well-known pub known as Auto Week for 13 years, and for about a decade, I was the lead motorsports editor at Auto Week. So covered uh, a variety of racing around the world from Formula One, NASCAR, sports cars, World Rally, FIA, uh, GT, uh, WEC, ALMS, all that good stuff. So I had a team of, of writers around the world uh, from the famous Nigel Roebuck at one point in Formula One to uh, some well-known writers, Kurt Cavan and IndyCar over here. Um, so that's sort of my background on the media side. Um, 20 years ago, I worked briefly at the Jim Russell Racing School uh, in Montremblant, uh Quebec, Canada. Um, working there as a mechanic, racing some cars a little bit, Formula Fords, and just been a car nerd and a racing uh, geek for the past 30 years, I'd say. So a lot of track experience and uh, appropriate to today's topic, a fair amount of, of video game experience and some, I'd say, sim experience, but certainly not the most hardcore about it as, as some guys have gotten to be today. But I was telling Chris the other day, I'm starting to, to ramp up my game on that a little bit. If nothing else, out of sheer boredom lately. <laughs> yeah, lockdown, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and I'm uh, Chris Considine. Um, I have been a racer all my life. I started in carts like most, um, went through the regionals level all the way up to international level. Uh, I then moved on to open wheel cars. Uh, last I was racing professionally, uh, was in the early 2000s in series like uh, Pro Mazda, uh, Formula Mazda at the time, um, and Formula Fords. I was an instructor at the Bondrat Racing School. Um, and along the way, I discovered simulation as a great training tool way back before it was popular uh, and decided 
foolishly maybe to start my own company <laughs> building uh, really high level racing simulators, uh, primarily to use as a training tool for race car drivers and teams, uh, both as a training tool for drivers, but also as an engineering tool um, for the team. And uh, that was about 14 years ago. Uh, we now have simulators on every continent except for Antarctica. Um, and our client list ranges from Formula One uh, teams all the way down to uh, pro-am, uh, pro-amateur drivers, uh, and even really high-end enthusiasts that just want the ultimate tool uh, to, to play and train. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been doing since. That's amazing, guys. So you've both really touched upon this already, but um, have you got any really early memories of your um, of radio life of cars and racing began? Oh, wow. Going Me? way back, guys. Yeah, I mean, going way back. It's, it, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was probably, geez, I'm going to forget exactly which year, but when I was probably seven or eight, uh, my mom and my stepfather took me to the Detroit Grand Prix when it was still Formula One running on the actual streets of downtown Detroit. I'm from Detroit. Um, this is when Senna was running for uh, Lotus in the John Player car. So that sort of caught my attention. Although the funny, I was just telling someone the other day, what was funny is, you know, back in the eighties, you didn't know about this stuff, especially in the States. Right. And it just seemed like something that came and went once a year. And I have this distinct memory of, of not walking away from that Detroit Grand Prix saying, I want to be a race car driver. I was infatuated with the guy running the ABC wide world of sports camera in a bucket on a crane hanging 50 feet off the track. I thought that was really cool. So uh, I didn't, I was always into cars though. I think I had subscriptions to multiple, all the main US magazines by the time I was probably in third grade. Um, but I didn't really put together the motorsport aspect of it, which in retrospect was, is strange. But until I went with uh, a really good friend of mine, my, my last year of high school to the 1994 Indy 500, which if you guys remember was the year where Penske had teamed up with Mercedes to build this super sort of, I don't want to, it wasn't a cheater engine, but everybody else sort of thought it was because the rule book had a loophole, right? Where they could run this thing and they ended up calling it the beast where it, it could run way more boost because uh, it was a push rod engine, not an overhead cam engine. And they just dominated the whole month at, at the 500. And that was only a few weeks after Ayrton Senna had died, which having seen him all those years before as a kid and him catching my attention just in that black and gold car with that yellow helmet, it sort of was this perfect collision. Uh, sorry if that's a bad, bad thing. Uh, a, yeah, yeah, I didn't mean that. Uh, but a perfect uh, apex of circumstance that kind of opened my eyes all of a sudden as a 17-year-old to motorsport and just kind of fell in love with it hardcore from there. I don't think I've missed a major race since, either in person or on TV at least. So, uh, And somehow it turned into a career. Uh, so it shows that you know, just, just being a nobody from kind of nowhere uh, in, as far as the business goes and having no connections, that there's always a way to, to find your, your foot into the door. So it helped that I was always a writer. I got a journalism degree in college. So, you know, combining that skill set with, with that passion uh, let me get into the Carmack business where I sort of finagled my way into covering motorsport full time. <laughs> well, I mean, if, you, if you're passionate about something and you study it, that's where you just, you excel. It's you'll always put more heart in something that you that you love than something that you don't so yeah absolutely get that yeah and my introduction started very very early uh i mean my father was a motorsports journalist as well uh and still a racer uh at the time and i mean my earliest memories of racing were probably at our local track here a local little dirt track called ascot um, and watching my father race. Uh, and almost immediately afterwards, I was probably about five when I got my first cart. Um, so, I mean, I watched him race and then he came and, and had me start racing. So, I mean, I grew up with cars, uh, both street cars and the journalism side of it, but also the motorsport side of it, watching him racing and racing myself. So that started very, very early. And dirt tracks are especially interesting because the dirt is flying. You know, it's not very glamorous, but it is just pure racing. And carts are the same way, right? It's it's not glamorous at all. It's just racing. So that's how I grew up with it. So basically, my goal was to become Chris's dad. Excellent. Last one. So out of interest, um, did gaming play any part in 
as a, as a kid in that area, or was that something that came into your life later on? Well, for me, that's an interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Chris. Go oh ahead. yeah. So I mean, for me, uh, you know, I loved everything about racing, and because my father was a journalist, I was exposed to computers very, very, very early on um, in the early '80s. Uh, before computers were very sophisticated at all. Um, and being naturally curious, you know, I was uh, installing the very basic racing games, which for me at the time were entertainment, right? So uh, that was tons of fun and the games were very simple. So it was just me playing as a child. It was only much, much, much later on when games got very sophisticated that I made the transition from playing from entertainment to uh to actually using it for training but i mean the first games i remember were like indycar uh on the pc which was like a dos based game you know or indy 500 sorry it was called indy 500 so yeah is there a point that you thought down the line where the game started to turn to a point where it's like the these could actually be a piece to to use for people that want to aspire to be a racer was there any point that made you think we can use this to actual tr actually train racers. Yeah, um, yes, uh, because I, I remember early on because I was also karting and racing even as a young child, I remember thinking, oh, these are not very accurate at all, but they sure are fun, you know, and I get to pretend to be my favorite race car driver. Um, but I remember the first game that I thought, wow, this is actually quite sophisticated. And that was, for me was called a uh, Viper Racing. Um, and it was an early Windows game um, in the, I think the mid nineties, maybe even early nineties. Um, and I, I, you know, I even, I thought it was so realistic um, that and I was so impressed with it and I got a force feedback steering wheel working with it. I thought, man, this tire model is doing the right thing. Like this is happening that I showed it to my family friend at the time, uh, Tommy Kendall who was racing Trans Am and a multi Trans Am champion. And I remember, I was like, Tommy, you gotta try this. You gotta try this, this is amazing. And I remember him trying it and him, like his face just lit up and went, whoa, this is actually quite good. You know? And he was quite impressed. He was just as impressed with it as I was, which I thought was amazing because he was like my hero, right? So that was the moment when I went, there's something to this, <laughs> you know? Excellent. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, it's from my standpoint the first game i remember playing was on my atari 7200 uh because i was i was too sort of poor to have a nintendo right when nintendo came out right so i still i was the kid who still had an atari instead but uh and i was playing pole position two on my 13 inch black and white tv in my bedroom and probably geez i don't know if in sixth grade something like that so uh the one that stands out and and chris again obviously being the proprietor of a, a sim racing company today is is way deeper into the the software than i ever was with some of these legacy titles so I'm a, i was always a little more mainstream i had that and then didn't think much of it until probably like 94 or 95 when the very first need for speed came out i remember a buddy of mine telling me that another friend of ours who i wasn't as good of friends with to go over to his house as my as my buddy was telling me had like a i don't know what system it was it wasn't a sega it was like a neo geo or something right that was out back then uh and need for speed was on that that platform and him just telling me about this game and just how insane it was so i remember finally getting a copy for a, a computer uh that another friend of mine in college had and playing it and, thinking, and that was really cool but where i really sort of went over the edge was when the very first f1 title for playstation one came out in uh 96 and that was uh, I think it was just called Formula One, but it was a recreation of the 95 season, right? So when I got that, and I remember charting like Autosport magazine would have almost like monthly, if not weekly updates on the status of this game. And the first time they printed a, a couple screenshots of it in the mag, I was just blown away that it had the tag Air sponsorship timing on the bottom and it had all the right graphics. And I still go back and I watch uh, YouTube videos of that game now because I, I thought it was just so amazing as a Formula One geek at the time that the cars finally were the actual cars with actual driver and team names tracks were basically the right layout. So, you know, again, I wasn't actually racing anything myself, so it didn't really hit me as anything valuable until like similar to what Chris said, I remember buying some of those early console steering wheels and 
be really excited on my way home from from Best Buy, right? That like I got this thing and I'm gonna go home. It's gonna be what I've always wanted, and then hooking it up and saying, "Oh, this is still garbage," right? So um, somewhere along the way, I think like on PlayStation Two, for me, I'd say I think it was PS Two. There was an F1 game, whether I think it was an EA game, or there were a couple of, at a certain point where you could get the onboard camera view, right? Like the the helmet cam or the uh, roll bar hoop cam, like looks like on TV still to this day. And with a wheel that halfway worked, you could go around the tracks and suddenly actually learn the layout of the track to a pretty solid degree. So that was, for me, that was the best thing is then watching the races, you could play the game. And I still do this sometimes today, just to remind myself, if I say, you know, it's going to be the, uh, Malaysian Grand Prix coming up, you do 20 laps on there. And then when you watch the race, you've got a much broader perspective of what each corner actually is and what the, the general speeds are and the gears and what the sight lines are like. So that's nerd stuff, but that, that for me, and, you know, and obviously Gran Turismo and Forza and things like that have come along, which I'm sure we'll talk about this. Chris is a expert about, like he already mentioned, tire models and, and how realistic they are. But for me, as a as a training tool to this day, the little bit of racing I've done, but tons of track testing with uh, cars over the years and things like that, or, or attending racing schools, that's the value that I see in it more than anything. Is you can show up somewhere now, and if you've driven the track on one of these simulations, uh, be it console or PC, you at least know all the lefts and rights. Yeah, so you don't have to spend 20 minutes even just trying to kind of get your bearings on where the place goes. That's quite interesting. Interesting background into it. To be fair, I mean. It's nice that you guys have both got, Chris has got more of a racing background right from the get-go and you haven't. It's that, that's quite a nice contrast. Make for some nice conversation, I think. Yeah, for um, sure. But how, uh, sorry, just going back to yourself, Chris, quickly. Um, in terms of how do you go from racing to engineering? How did that, how did the whole simulator sort of start for you? Um, well, for me, um, it was born from my own need, right? Um, I was a young, struggling race car driver, like thousands of other kids around the planet at the time and still today, right? And, it, you know, for lack of budget, I can't, you know, well, I mean, the best way to get better at any sport is to practice it as much as possible, right? And unlike uh, ball sports, like here in the United States, baseball, basketball, football, right? You can just go to any field, any park and throw the ball around as much as you want. And the more you do that, the better you get at it. Well, with motorsports, you actually have to have a race car, have a team. There's tons of consumables. You know, that stuff gets very expensive very quickly. I really you know, I, I had very limited budget. I mean, my father was a motorsports journalist. So they're not exactly making the most money in the world. Tell no. me about it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had to kind of do it on my own. And, you know, the working at a racing school was one of the ways to get as much seat time as possible, you know, and as much practice as possible. Um, but as I went up the open wheel ladder, it started getting very, very expensive. And, you know, my first things were, okay, you know, I want to learn the track that I'm going to go to. Uh, my second thing was, okay, well, you know, I really should be in this seating position in the open wheel car, especially in a pro Mazda, your feet are, it's a more modern open wheel car where you're very laid down, you know, your, your feet are above your seat. Um, you know, so I started building myself frames and then it's like, oh, you know, I really want to get more feel from this. I want to get a better force feedback wheel, better brake pedals. You know, I mean, an open wheel car, your the brake pressures are very, very high. So it was a very natural transition for me, right? It was like just piece by piece by piece. Um, and modern race car drivers have to be a little bit engineer anyway because you have to really understand what the car is doing what it wants what it's trying to communicate to you um i was lucky in the sense that i had plenty of mechanics and race engineers around me to kind of answer questions for me um, i had plenty of mentors everywhere i looked so i just asked those questions you know how do i do this how do i make that you know and then i researched like crazy and I just, like I said, did it piece by piece by piece until eventually I was left with a simulator that was quite advanced and had no one had ever really put together before. Um, so it was kind of a natural transition into my customers wanted that same thing that I had. You know, I was like, can you make me another one? <laughs> you know, so it, it, it wasn't all in one go. It was lots and lots of little things and never settling for this is good enough. Yeah. You know? 
Well, Chris got ahead of me on that because it, it was the same thing, right? It was, it was a game and it was something fun to do, but because I didn't have any money and I didn't really come from a place where I, at the time, early on anyway, knew how to get really involved in it. Uh, the game was, and the Sims were a, a, almost a substitute for having that track and going out and doing that thing. So uh, to me, it was like, in retrospect, this is really stupid, but it was, it was like, if, if I'm really good at this, this racing game, I must be really good in real life. Right. So, um, you know, that, yeah, but that's true today. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in terms of, in terms of the actual tech now, then how you said sort of like you were building up from the, from the, from the bottom and it became more lifelike and you get, you got better pedals how similar is it now to say so getting in a race car to doing a, a proper full blown simulator what what are the key differences and what are the similarities where you go i can't genuinely tell the difference yeah well i mean i i was a pro driver and i am still an amateur race car driver and i do it day to day so i'll be the first one to admit it will never be exactly the same um, there are some things that you can do in real life that you cannot do in a simulator, and that will always be the case. It's always pushing the limit of what it can do today and what it could do tomorrow and going step by step by step. And I tell all of my clients slash students these days, these are the things that it is really good at teaching you. And these are the things that it's not, and you will just have to do that part in real life, right? But every day, software and hardware takes a step forward and pushes that limit and adds a new capability. And, you know, our, the, the one big one is, you know, we can't create sustained Gs in, in, a, in a simulator, right? We're bound by the laws of physics. I can't pin you against the side of the seat at three or four Gs and hold you there. You know, I can do things with physical feedback devices that kind of communicate with the chassis and tire are doing, and those things are very important, right? But there are some, for lack of a better term, uh, compromises. You know, you will not be able to have that sustained G. Uh, you know, you cannot do things like have huge accidents and so on and so forth, you know. Um, but you can do so much with it, it doesn't discount it at the parts that do train you, you know. So I, I think in terms of like how close it is to real life, very and the things you can you can learn so much in simulators now. I, I can't assign a number to it, a percentage, but it is a very valid learning tool. And I think that's flushed out with how many sim racers are transitioning to real racing and how many real racers are now going i better start training in a simulator you know i mean every single formula one team has a simulator every you know, almost every single big racing team has a simulator of some sort and it's some and almost all drivers now are using simulation and some sort of training you yeah. make a good point there about how it affects sorry no go on matt go on Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, to Chris's point, I, I would echo the same thing. And, and we can tell a funny story a couple of years ago when I was testing one of Chris's simulators, especially with the VR headset on, uh, it, it can fool you for a little while there. I mean, the biggest challenge that I've always seen to it is absolutely the G load because um, in a real car, right, you rely on basically the seat of your pants and, and the weight transfer is everything in a, in a race car, any car when you're performance driving. So Simulating that is really difficult, I think, um, and, and Chris's CXC equipment does a pretty darn good job of it with their motion control and, and that sort of tech. But at the end of the day, you're still sort of relying on your eyes and more whatever the force feedback is through your hands than you are through the seat of your pants. So it is a, it is a different experience in, in car control and just kind of having a feel for what's going on in real life. And then um, the biggest thing that everybody I know and some of the pro drivers I know that we all complain about, right, is, and it's gotten a hundred times better over the years, but it's the brake pedal. That's a really difficult thing, right, Chris? Like mm -hmm. simulating the brake pressure and, and being able to have that brake control. Because if you play with, you know, one of these uh, entry level steering wheels, like a Logitech or something like that, it's just a, it's just a switch, right? I mean, you're pushing it with your foot, but it's either, it's pretty much on or off. It's just a potentiometer. So it's a position sensor, not a pressure sensor. Um, so those have always been the two things. And then of course, on top of that, like 
and this is the funny thing I alluded to, but you can't really ever simulate fear. I don't think unless, uh, unless you're gonna have somebody stand there and bash you over the head with a baseball bat every time you make a mistake. So you've got that kind of, right. You've already got that, that consequence lingering in your mind, but there is no reset button in real life. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, along with that break pressure uh, thing, it's uh, one of our biggest challenges is, um, you know, really breaking down what are we missing and what are the the individual parts that you're missing. So like for braking uh, as a good example, right? When a race car driver is braking for a corner, they expect a certain amount of pressure, a certain amount of pressure equals how much braking there is, but they also need to feel that deceleration feel at the same time because it's a combination of things. It's your body going, I'm decelerating this much visually and physically, I can comprehend that, right? And then I'm applying a control input, right? Which is the brake pressure. I expect this amount of pressure and this amount of feel on the brake pedal, but then the braking force should then, you know, be, working in tune with that, right? It's like, if I lock up the tires uh, or have a threshold braking moment or something like that, then I should feel this, you know, as far as a G-force feel and also the steering wheel changes, the steering wheel pressure changes and all of those things all have to work together and being able to break them down individually and go, these are the things we are missing. How do we add those back, right? And most race car drivers aren't really able to communicate you know, uh, granularly, exactly the things they are missing, right? They just, I just don't have, I can't feel the brakes. Well, okay, in what way? What parts of the brakes are you not feeling? And and most drivers will go, oh, well, first it's the pressure, right? So that was easy for us to attack. You know, we added a, a, a complete hydraulic system with a pressure transducer and so on and so forth. And they're like, oh, that's way, way better, but I'm still missing that brake feel. Okay, well, break that down for me. Exactly what brake feel are you missing now? So then we added seatbelt tensioners and compression systems, and and it just keeps going on and on and on and on, right? So that's, you just chip away at it little by little by little, you know, and that's why simulators are getting better and better and better at it, you know. Is that something that you think can ever be replicated almost to the T or is that something that will just continuously be worked on? Uh, yeah, I've learned over time to say, look, you, no goal is unachievable. It's just being patient, getting there, <laughs> you know, um, technology and our understanding of what, you know, sensations and things we're missing are being, the boundaries of those are being pushed every day. So it's just understanding that you have to break it down and be patient and get there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so when me and Matt were doing our research, we came across some stories of people who went from uh, basically um, becoming pilots and racers through playing simulators. There's actually an English guy called James Baldwin who's now gone from doing that into now entering the British GT Championship. So I was wondering if um, you guys have any stories yourself of people uh, who you know who also went down that same route. And do you think that VR and simulators can play a really important role in that influence? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I have a very personal one, right? My children, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I mean, my children started in simulators. They're, they're seven and 11 years old and my, my children started using them just as entertainment and, you know, they wanted to go to karting, you know, eventually. And the amount of, of, you know, how quickly they came up to speed in the real kart was uh, fascinating to watch because they already knew so much before they got there. You know, they knew what the racing line was. They knew what, you know, where to break, where to turn in, where to keep their eyes. You know, all of those beginning lessons were done in a simulator so early that they hit the track running immediately. And of course they had to change their driving style for carts and learn a new track and so on and so forth. But I mean, that's, the perfect example right there is is someone who's never been in a race car before, but understands all the basic lessons that we taught at the racing school. I mean, almost every single one, all were done in in a simulator before they ever turned a wheel. But yeah, I mean, there's GT Academy drivers. There's, uh, you know, the racing world's now full of them. You know, it's amazing. 
what um just what a few things what do you did after they came off the track was there certain things they found were really difficult to get to grips with straight off the bat what were the few learning things they went that's way different on the track and way more difficult what did they struggle with uh it's the one that that mac brought up fear <laughs> right <laughs> in the simulator there was no fear right um and in the cart there was instantaneous fear and consequence right um they both my kids i'm lucky in the sense that both my kids err on the side of caution and they before they even got in the cart they were scared so they drove much much slower right and through the corners they were quite quick but on the straightaways they never put their foot down <laughs> right and it's it became that conversation of well i don't understand you do that in the simulator and they're like yeah but here it's much scarier <laughs> you know there are so many more consequences you know so that was the big one i think mac hit on that right away <laughs> you know yeah and the, and the other one i would say from a from a pure then like technical driving aspect right is um i actually to this day prefer still playing like the formula one games or uh sims something with downforce cars because i somehow feel like i have more feel on those cars and I, the driving style is more natural to me personally when i'm when i'm just doing it virtually than in real life um things like you know and I, I know again like i'm not the most hardcore guy so people listening to this uh yeah you can say that's because you're an idiot and you're just playing gran turismo and you've only got time to play on consoles right and stuff like that but even something like a set of corsa i played that on pc and stuff the race cars tend to translate a little better if it's if it's the right model and the the tire model is is done well and the aero model is done well i struggle a lot with a technique that in real life you need to use, which is car rotation to get cars to turn into corners and carry a lot of speed. Uh, that's one thing, Chris, maybe, maybe you found different lately, especially, but that's one thing I still think a lot of the software struggles with is what the tire dynamics are at the absolute edge of grip. Yeah. I feel like uh, sim engineers and tire engineers for that matter really are just scratching the surface of understanding what tires are really doing. And I believe that that's kind of exaggerated when it comes to street cars and street tires. Um, so I think that's a function of just, you know, we don't really know exactly what they're doing and we take our best stab at it, you know, um, but our best stab really to a, a, a driver who knows what they should do and what they should feel like and behave like they just can't accomplish that right yet <laughs> yeah. um actually chris I, I was on a youtube channel earlier and i saw that you're recently working on a full motion cart simulator as well oh yeah that's really that's really cool by the way very exciting that's <laughs> really cool um so i'm just wondering what new challenges did you face um with that project oh compared to other stuff <laughs> that project was just challenge after challenge so, I mean, that project was really born as an internal kind of development project, right? It's a design exercise. It's taking a car model that is completely different from any other car model. I mean, carts are radically different physics-wise than a car, um, both in feel, but also what, you know, it's doing from the chassis perspective, tires, you know, everything's happening so much quicker. There's no suspension, you know, everything, right? Um, so, you know, that was interesting in the sense that, you know, this was, there was no client. This is just for us to really stretch our brains and go, okay, you know, here's a totally different challenge. What can you do with it? And, you know, it started with the motion system, right? Every, you know, everything is violent in a, in, a, in a race cart. And, but that violence really is that communication of what's going on with the cart and the tire um and telling the driver what's going on right it's not violent just to be violent it's just everything is amplified right um you know both vertical forces tire forces g forces everything um so how do we build a motion system that can convey that type of racing and move the entire chassis and um then it was packaging and vr and and understanding what are the forces that a driver is feeling in a cart you know that one had uh, you know, wind is a big thing in a cart, right? You are out in the open. So that one had big fans, huge powered fans that sped up and slowed down depending on how the velocity of the cart and the direction the wind was coming from. 
Um, it was pure VR instead of having any screens because again, you're out in the open and the world is out there. Um, you know, no little things like there are no rear view mirrors in a cart. You actually on the straightaways only, hopefully you look behind you to see if there's another cart behind you. You know, um, there are other things like, you know, when you're in a cart trying to perceive what's behind you with no mirrors, it's not just the sound of the cart behind you or looking behind you, but you, there's actually you can feel the vibration of another engine behind you, you know. Um, being able to convey that through the, the physical system of the cart. Um, it just goes on and on and on with that thing. And, and it was a good engineering exercise for our team to kind of like think out of the box. Like in case a customer wants these things, you know, what would we do? How would we solve this? Another thing I saw on your YouTube channel, Chris, was that it was a robo race, a, a special secret project. That looked really interesting. Can you maybe go into that or is it too secret? No, no, no. We can talk about that one. Um, so, yeah, that's another example of thinking out of the box, right? I mean, the Robo Race team came to us and said, look, we're about to go do the Goodwood uh, Hill Climb. Um, we want to have a kind of audience engagement tool, right? Um, it's such a unique project. Theirs is such a unique project. The car is AI driven, right? It's driven by a computer. There is no pilot um, or driver. Um, and we want to really engage people and um, make them understand what it is and what it feels like and what it's doing on the track. Um, and we came up with this really interesting concept. It's, you know, there is no cockpit, right? So you can't put someone in the cockpit of the road race car. Um, they gave us one of their spare chassis and they said, you know, without, Make, turning this into just a driving simulator, how do you explain to people what this thing is doing, right? So we kind of devised a way of capturing the car going up the hill climb before the, the actual event. Um, they rented the track, I, or driveway, I should say, <laughs> um, and actually had the car do, do one run. And we recorded it uh, with a 360 VR camera, telemetry and everything from a kind of floating perspective above, the, right above the car, right? Um, we captured all that data, all that physical data and all the visual data. And we built a sled where you're in sort of a Superman position over the car, almost flying over the car, right? Suspended that sled from the car with a motion system, VR headset, again, fan system as well, and replayed that footage back in 360 VR where you felt like you were basically flying over the car. And it was the actual recorded lap with the actual recorded telemetry um, and fans and everything. And it was a very compelling project uh, or compelling ride, I should say. You weren't in control other than you could start and stop it. Um, but you really got the sense that this was a computer driving. It wasn't a human being driving. And as a driver, uh, me experiencing it, it was so interesting to feel what the car was doing. It felt so digital. Its movements felt so digital, right? It wasn't smooth arcs or transitions and things. There were all these little micro corrections that it was constantly making at a very high rate of speed. Um, and it was fascinating to, to experience it over and over and over again, you know. Uh, so it was a really fun project working with them and, and uh, people really enjoyed it. Uh, we always joked we had quite a few screamers on it, <laughs> you know. People would get on and, and weren't prepared for how realistic it would feel, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So Chris gave me that, uh, not that ride, but a, a poor man's version of that a couple of years ago uh, where he had me drive some laps on one of his simulators of Lamar and then said, hey, do you want to watch the replay? And I said, sure. And he said, do you want to watch it from this view? And the next thing I knew, I had the VR headset on and it was this bird's eye view of the track as if I was flying. But the problem, problem was on the replay, there's motion in the sim rig. So... Chris, do you remember this? I mean, probably. Yeah, about, I do. Then about 30 seconds, I went from someone who never in my life has suffered even a, a sliver of motion or seasickness to like ripping these things off, these headset off my head and going, get me off of this. I'm going to puke. <laughs> so yeah. it was bizarre. Like it really felt like you were flying. But um, and this is something that happens, actually, I think, to a lot of a lot of pro race drivers. If people don't know this as well is 
it's motion sickness on the simulators is a real thing too, uh, depending on the person and depending on the rig that they're using. Because as soon as you take that that feeling out of it and it's just visual um, in that 360 field of view and that that 3D depth, like your your brain and just doesn't understand it a lot of times. So uh, it happened to me firsthand, just not from driving the thing. I had no problems in over two or three hours driving it, but as soon as we went to a replay where there was no motion and I was just hovering over the track watching it uh, like I was in a helicopter, I wanted to be sick. So um, that, that's a real thing as yeah. well, right? Like a lot of these guys do, you know, I remember hearing that, you know, even Michael Schumacher would suffer from it on Ferrari system. It, it has nothing, you know, I think that a lot, some people tend to think like, oh, like I'm macho and I'm a, I'm a man and I'm a driver <laughs> and I'm this and that. It's like, I don't get motions. It's like, no, dude, it, it has, it's completely out of your control. It doesn't matter who you are. Like, I don't suffer from it, but that's just a quirk. My, my father is somebody who is a long time, you know, boating enthusiast and a big time fisherman uh, just for fun. And I mean, he's got to take Dramamine and he wears these little wristbands to put pressure on a, on a spot on your wrist. You know, if you guys have seen these, like he'll get motion sickness, you know, almost walking down a flight of stairs. Um, there's just nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, I've had a couple guys, uh, some, some journalists, Ford took some people last year to its HQ in uh, North Carolina where they run their race teams and have this giant professional simulator and put a lot of people on it. And half of them spent the rest of the day like trying not to throw up because it takes you a while, right? To, to acclimate to that sort of a thing that your, your eyes and your brain aren't used to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, without the physical feedback to match the, the visual, that could be a big problem. And, you know, even those big uh, simulators, and you alluded to this earlier, right? Those big, gigantic OEM simulators or Formula One simulators, they're built for the engineers. They're built by the engineers, for the engineers. They only have a driver in them because it's one of the variables they need in their calculations. So they pay very little attention to what is accurate from the physical feedback perspective um, because it's not the goal, right? The goal is not to make the driver better or happy in the sim or any of that sort of stuff, right? It's to develop better parts. And when you get in those big gigantic simulators with those huge screens and the motions kind of, or the physical feedback component of it is really just kind of an afterthought that really makes it an issue for people who suffer from motion sickness. And that's something that we have to that we work on all the time with our simulators is making that physical feedback something that your brain is already accustomed to expecting you know so so i've got a question for chris guys not to hijack oh your, no please do not, not yeah. to hijack your show here but <laughs> along that line because so uh you know when, when you guys originally contacted us and we chatted about uh doing this episode you know the i think the headline was sort of like let's talk about vr right so um the one thing about vr and so i alluded to this uh I should have mentioned this earlier because I, I said I would tell a story about this, but with Chris, uh, I think on the same day that I almost puked on the Lama overhead replay before that, um, I've been using his triple screen, you know, kind of standard simulator setup, which is amazing. But then he said, do you VR? Have you done VR? And I said, no, not really. And I said, let me drive that McLaren Formula One car around uh, Spa, which you know is is one of my favorite tracks. I've been there in real life, fortunate to be there in real life, uh, and I've probably done like literally a million laps of it over the years on all sorts of uh, different platforms, right? So he puts this headset on and kind of twists the sides to to align the lenses and, and get it dialed in for me. And all of a sudden, I went, "Holy shit!" Like you look down, and it's like you're in the car, right? Like your arms have have the McLaren driving suit steering wheels right in front of you, and it, it's amazing. So I set off and I'm going along and I'm going pretty good. I'm like, this is great. And we come through Blanchimaw, which is super fast. And I spin the car and it does almost a complete 360. And as it's headed to the wall, I instinctively ripped my hands off the wheel and like braced myself for this impact that was about to come, right? Because <laughs> just, just that 3D uh, and that 360 view, like the depth of of a vision there and and it can really fool your brain for a second as much as we talked about um also some of the shortcomings with this stuff the the plus side is amazing you know i couldn't believe what it looked like and i really felt like i was in this car in this real 3d world environment and it was just instinctual it wasn't a, it wasn't a goof it wasn't a joke it was just as soon as i knew i was going to hit this this wall 
and I think we were using iRacing at the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm just gonna hit this fake iRacing wall. Like I, for a second, like I actually thought it was gonna hurt, <laughs> yeah. you know? So that was, that was something else. But um, so I, ever since then, I've been going like, geez, you know, cause, cause Chris's rigs are tens and tens of thousands of dollars all the way up to, I don't know what the, the most expensive one you guys build at this point is, but it, it's a lot of money. So, um, you know, I've like most of us been, been stuck, pl- you know, first world problems, right. But stuck playing these pretty decent things at home, but definitely without simulation and, or sorry, motion simulation involved in it. So, you know, when Pete, PlayStation VR came out, PS4 VR came out, and now PS5 is coming out. And I know you can get it on on PC and things like that. I've really at times kind of missed that experience and thought, geez, I wish I could have a VR headset of my own. But the thing that scares me about it, and this is my question, Chris, is is that even even worth going down that road for someone who doesn't have a motion setup at home? Because after what happened with us, you know, with the with the Lamas situation. I was, I'm like, if I put this on my head at home and I'm going around, <laughs> but my seat doesn't move, all I'm going to do is like throw up all over my living room, like every day. Right. So yeah. is, is that kind of, I, I think a lot of people have been a little surprised that some of these companies, they launched VR, but then they haven't really pushed it as hard in some of this gaming stuff. Is that for motorsports from your standpoint, like kind of, is that a, a factor of what's going on there? Yeah, I think it's, well, unfortunately, it's a complicated answer, right? It's, um, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, you know, Um, and every piece you add makes things better, right? I mean, I'm constantly telling people, look, you know, a PlayStation game with a controller will help you learn the tracks. And then you add a force feedback steering wheel and pedals, and now you can do even more, you know, and every single piece you add gets you that much further ahead. Right. Um, And I think adding VR to a console is definitely has its value from the motion sickness perspective. Yes, it will be more difficult to adapt. The good news is your brain adapts. Right. Um, You can do it over and over and over again before and get to the point right before you start to feel sick and stop and reset for the day, you know, go away and come back the next day. And the more and more and more you do it, the more and more your brain goes, okay, this is the new norm. Without motion, I should just accept this, you know? Of course, the older you are, the longer it takes. You know, my kids are super young and their brains are like sponges and they adapt immediately to everything because that's the mode their brain is in, right? Um, so you can adapt to that, but it takes more work and more time. Um, I always tell people to stop before they get to the motion sick part where it's, you know, I just feel a little off. Okay. You're done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to it tomorrow. Don't, don't wait to get sick because it's not going to get any better. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and people, and people, it happens to, it takes them it seems like it takes them quite a long time during a day to recover. It's not yes. something that 30 minutes later, you're going to, you're going to feel back to normal. It's like, you're looking at, it's almost yeah. like you got food poisoning for a day, right? Yeah, exactly. And what you'll notice is that you can go longer and longer and longer before you get to that point where you're like, something's not quite right, you know, at, until eventually it's just not an issue anymore. Um, so our goal is always to make a simulator that takes less time to adapt, right? It's just more and more immersive and, it reproduces more and more of what your brain's already expected, you know, right off the bat. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't take components individually and get there over time and take longer to adapt to it. So yes, there is value in getting a VR headset and there is value in getting a better VR headset. You know, I mean, unfortunately the console stuff, like all console stuff is a compromise between cost and performance, right? So even the VR uh, sets for consoles are not as good performing, right? Uh, Some of the other things that help with motion sickness on VR especially, and even screens, um, is the ability to refresh quicker right? The higher the refresh rate is on a VR headset, the smoother the motion, the more frames you're getting, uh, the better it is for your brain, right? That's another factor, uh, not just the missing uh, physical feedback part of it. And uh, console VR headsets, I believe, refresh at 60 hertz, which is good, but not great. Um, There are uh, VR headsets now for PC that go up to 144 hertz, and that is even better, right? It's not any better resolution. I mean, they are better resolution at the same time too, but 
really the refresh part is the part that you go, wow, that's way better. This is why I don't talk to this guy that often because he starts <laughs> starts convincing me in my mind to uh, spend like thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> to have this going, you know. But, but that, I mean, that is let's not let's not lie. I mean, that is there's always you know we talk about this earlier um, that this is a cheap way in to to motorsport and and racing and and performance driving compared to the real thing. And, it, and in that sense, it's probably like two cents on the dollar. Right. But yeah. the guys, you know, to get really serious about it, you're still, you're still spending a lot of money. You know, you need a decent budget to, sure. to get in. I mean, I just spent, uh, is my girlfriend listening right now? I don't think so. She's on another call. So <laughs> I, mean, I think I just spent like, I think I just spent like 2,500 bucks on like a new Fanatec wheel and pedals and a new rig to hook them up to at home. So, uh, that right alone you know and it's like i i still haven't chris and i were talking about this the other day like he goes would you just buy a buy a pc and and then you don't have these limitations that you're sometimes complaining about with these consoles but for me i just don't have that much time honestly i wish i could spend eight hours a day on these things and racing online but you know i'm on the west coast so i got this time change issue with my friends who i'd want to do it with they're all on the eastern eastern seaboard or the midwest like and i look at it and i go you know another now i gotta add a pc a new pc to this and I'm up like another how many thousand dollars and for me I, I mostly you know I, for all the value I get out of it and, and as a training tool let's not get away from the fact right that at the end of the day this stuff is really just super freaking fun right I mean yeah. that's the bottom line I mean you, you, you know Chris has clients like you know you mentioned Tommy Kendall and uh and other guys uh, in the area in California out here who who are racers and who go in there Patrick Long I think uh right Chris guys yeah. like that like you know, and, and we do all get value out of it for sure, whatever your, your job is in this driving world. But at, at the end of the day, if it's not fun, you know, and that's the thing, like some, some people in the sim world, I've always said, get so caught up on how realistic it is. And while we've talked about that a fair amount, it's, it's the number one thing that you want to discuss. If it's not any fun, then it doesn't matter how realistic it is. You know, I've jumped on some sims in the past or things that purported to be the most hardcore sim on the market, so real. And I've, I've stepped out of it after five minutes and been like, man, I don't even want to drive that thing anymore because it's, it's harder to drive that sim than any car I've actually driven in real life. So I've never, and Chris and I, I think we've talked about this, right? Like I, I've never really understood that logic in those, those pieces of software where it's actually more difficult, you know, even just to hold the car in a straight line, let yes. alone go around a corner at speed. Anytime I jump on something like that anymore, especially, and it, it behaves in that way, I, I just kind of throw it in the bin and walk away. I don't care what the, I don't care what the guys on the internet say about how realistic it is. Like I've driven, <laughs> you know, we've all driven thousands of cars and tested some pretty high speed stuff and done some, some pretty serious driving. So if it doesn't feel right, I don't, I've never equated difficulty with realistic, put it that way. That also really nicely rounds it off as well. The fact that coming back to it at the end of the day, it still is technically a game. It has it has to be fun. Um, the the one thing I'd ask is uh, that I'm just kind of interested about is you're talking about the physical aspect and how it has on your body when you are just playing VR and you've not got the motion behind it. Say if someone did train in that and they did VR at home, they had the steering wheel and they didn't have the whole motion behind it. If would they struggle transitioning to a to a race car? because they've gotten used to the motion of not having motion. Yes. Um, is there difficulties there or? Yes. In fact, there's a great use case for that. I, racing... <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I racing did the challenge, did a challenge of some sort, uh, uh, and I forget the specifics, but they invited a bunch of their top, top race car drivers, uh, in, in sim race drivers. Um, to come test at uh, a Skip Barber school and then a Formula 3 car, I think, afterwards. And the guy who was the absolute fastest, both in iRacing um, and then in the, like, Skip Barber training cars, then got to do the Formula 3 car. And, I mean, the guy is what they call an alien, right? He just can put a car anywhere he wants and do anything he wants with it in the sim. And he was very, very quick. And I think he was the quickest in the Skip Barber car as well. Um, suddenly got in an F3 car with downforce and real uh, physical, you know, constraints, I should say. And I think he could only do like three or four laps and his body just gave up, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think he even threw up. Um, yeah. 
and it was uh you know it's there is no substitute for the the real hard you know especially of a really high level race car the hard g-forces of a downforce car on slicks that can just do amazing things physically but also requires that other driver as well you know it, that is uh, that's a big thing. I and mean, you see even the Formula One car drivers, you know, these days uh, after COVID were saying they were struggling with some of their neck, you know, stuff. They couldn't work out that part of their neck in, in the gym, you know, or um, so, I mean, there's no substitute for that, <laughs> you know. I'm sorry, just one last thing for me. We talked about G's right at the beginning. Um, is there literally ever going to be a substitute in Sims for G-Force? Can you see any future for that? Or is it always just going to be kind of the way it is in motion in simulators uh, the way i've seen things progress on the on the physical feedback side i have to now say yes one day eventually we will be able to do that i don't know how but we will <laughs> you know you'll have like some I, gravity manipulating chamber right so. yeah exactly i mean you know uh, the things that we're now doing with physical feedback devices, I never would have thought possible 10 years ago. Never, you know. Um, so I think that the direction we're going in, yes, we will be able to do that. The bar for technology raises and then the limits just keep yeah. going and going, I guess. So yeah, that's how it has done all over the years. Exactly. Hey, man, if you would have told me when I was sitting in my college dorm room or my apartment in, say, 1997, like I mentioned playing this, Formula One game on PlayStation One using a hand controller that I could have one day, you know, this like actual replica F1 steering wheel and a seat and the right and pedals and paddle shifters and even the graphics that we have today, um, even on some of the older older pieces of software, I would have never believed it. And it's probably a good thing I didn't have it because as it was back then, I would kill hours playing that game, which you know in retrospect is is pretty terrible. But you know, if if I would have had this equipment, uh, even on the simple console side to that level, I don't think I ever would have uh, attended a class back then. So it's, uh, it really is amazing. It really is like how far it's come. Um, whatever your purpose is for it, you know, I think that, like we said, the fun part of it just, just can't be underestimated. And, you know, you can just lose hours with this thing. And, and I have to stop myself sometimes weeks at a time from ever turning it on because I just know that there goes uh, the next five hours of productivity. Thank you so much, Chris and Max, for being on the podcast with us. I really appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you? Have you got Twitter, Facebook, websites? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you can find out more about us at our website, uh, cxcsimulations.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook and YouTube uh, page as well. Um, and, yeah, you can see all the videos of what we've been working on and, and see what we do. Yeah, right on. And for me, like I said, it's uh, Automobile Magazine in the U.S. Uh, we do a lot of uh, great content, different from the, the purely by the numbers sort of automotive content. It's not all just testing and zero to 60 times. A lot of uh, deep dive features, things like that, personalities, profiles. Uh, we've done some great stories on, on this topic in the last year or two or three about sim racing. So uh, the website is automobilemag.com and Automobile Mag on social media. That's our handle. Fantastic. And sorry, just one last question for me, just to come back a bit. You guys have had a very natural way and a very organic way, I'd say, probably go into how you got into your specific areas and your jobs. Anyone aspiring to get into those areas, what advice would you guys give people? Oh, wow. I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you guys. I don't, that, that's a loaded question these days. I mean, it's, uh, I, I could run a, a separate podcast, I think, with you on this topic, right? But um, yeah, I mean, you look at the state of, of media today, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's different and it's a tough game because it's 24-7. It's There's so many outlets competing for the, the same slice of it. But, you know, uh, from, a, from a simple standpoint, if you are looking someone who wants to get into automotive media, automotive journalism, I'd say the number one thing to do is, is a lot of people think it's driver and, and know all this stuff to spit out uh, off the top of your head about cars but you know become a good writer become a good photographer become a good editor learn those basic core skills go to go to school at least take some classes I don't think you have to be a, a journalism major per se or, or an English major but you definitely need to have uh, as elementary as it sounds those types of skills and then you know it's just sort of a 
think it's like anything it's it's the right place right time you just gotta beat after it and 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 chase the trail to uh get your foot in the door somewhere and after that it, it tends to be up to you how it goes yeah and and in my industry it's it's really it's it's quite easy you know research right you know troll the internet and try and find you know learn everything you can um you know uh seek out mentors online and offline uh that have been there done that doing what you want to do um and then last but not least just do it take the leap you know um start small uh do it in your spare time and grow it organically you know um but just take that leap cool sounds good well chris and mac thank you both so much for being on that podcast it's been a pleasure thanks guys my pleasure Thank you.